Uh, we are in week five, uh, working through the epistle of First Peter, and today we're going to cover chapter three. Um, I got an extra week, so we're going to have two more weeks after this, and we'll do chapter four next week, and then we'll wrap up with uh, chapter five. So we'll do each chapter individually uh, this week and the next two weeks. So today we'll look at chapter three. Um, let me pray for us, and then we'll do a, a very brief recap of last week, and we'll get into the text. All right, Heavenly Father, we come before you. Uh, we thank you for your grace to us in Christ. We thank you for the reality of the resurrection um, and the sure and solid hope that we have in Christ. Lord, we pray that you give us grace uh, as we look at these uh, marital roles at the beginning of chapter 3. You give us grace to live out uh, the roles and the callings um, that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, uh, we were in chapter 2, and we covered verses 11 through the end of the chapter. Um, verse 11 and 12, uh, Peter started out talking about this personal purity that the believer is to be marked by. Um, he said, uh, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your souls. So we should be marked by this personal purity by putting sin to death. Um, and then that that should translate to public practice. In other words, that we should live lives of integrity. There should be consistency uh, between our, our personal kind of private lives and, uh, and holiness and then our public, the public outworking of that faith. Um, and Peter launched into a section describing humility and submission in these various uh, more public spheres. Uh, submission to God-given authorities in the civil sphere um, and the economic sphere. And then in chapter 3, we're going to get into family sphere and what does it look like to exercise uh, mutual submission and humility in the church. So Peter's exhortation last week was challenging the way that we think about authorities, the way we talk about authorities um, and uh, in the civil sphere and in the, uh, the economic sphere specifically. Um, and then we have this kind of interlude in the middle of these four spheres that he's talking through where he gives us the example of Christ at the end of chapter 2 and how Christ is this ultimate example of submitting to the will of the Father and trusting himself to the Father, uh, even to the point of death, and how that is our example as well. All right, so chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. All right, so Peter addresses wives here um, and calls wives to uh, submission. And submission is kind of like a, I don't know what, a dirty word in our culture, which tends to despise authority uh, in general. But we see it clearly commanded here in First Peter, as well as throughout the New Testament. Um, and so as we talk about submission, I want to uh, lay out uh, in brief the, where uh, the idea of submission and headship has its biblical underpinnings, some of the core doctrines behind these ideas. Um, so one, I would say, one of the core doctrines is, in fact, the nature of the Trinity. 
So we see that each person of the Trinity actually adopts distinct roles in the creation of the universe and the accomplishment of redemption. So we have these role distinctions in the nature of the Trinity uh, and submission within the persons of the Godhead. And so what that tells us is that the practice of submission has nothing to do with equality or worth or the value of the submitting party. Um, Equality doesn't mean filling the same roles. It doesn't mean doing the exact same things. So you have the nature of the Trinity, um, creation itself, um, God defines headship uh, at creation. He creates Adam first. He gives Adam ultimate authority. Eve is created as a helper to him. And then they're both given these complementary roles to be able to go out together and fulfill the garden mandate, the, the, the mandate to rule and subdue the earth. And then finally, marriage is portrayed as a picture of Christ and the church. Right, so Christ is the head of the church. The church submits to Christ. Um, and marriage is a, is a picture of that same reality. Um, So Peter here, when he describes submission, uh, he jumps straight to the worst-case scenario in some sense, uh, 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 writing specifically to wives who were saved after the marriage, so the wife is saved and the husband is not. Um, This is actually pretty similar to what he did uh, in the previous section when he was talking about working relationships, where he jumped straight to the worst-case scenario uh, by describing slaves and masters. And so what he's doing here by jumping straight to the worst-case scenario is he's in some sense, he's describing the comprehensiveness of the principle, right? That it applies in all situations, even these really, really hard situations. Um, so what does submission mean? When he, what, is it, what is he saying, really, when he says, uh, be subject to your husbands? Um, I put a couple examples up here. Um, one, I would say, is recognizing this uh, principle of headship, right? So recognizing husbands' leadership and authority, uh, recognizing the husband is the head of the household and the final decision maker. And then going along with that is uh, showing honor and deference even if you disagree with decisions. So kind of abiding with them, going along with them, um, as long as they're not sinful, which we'll get into. Uh, so it means that wives are to respect their husbands, to abide by um, those decisions, and have a responsive attitude toward that leadership. Again, even if the husband isn't saved. And then thirdly, I put here not being overly pushy or assertive, not demanding one's own way. Um, You might remember we actually read 1 Corinthians 13 last week, and that's actually a characteristic of love in general, not insisting on one's own way. Um, But I think it's especially applicable here as we think about uh, the idea of uh, marital submission. So a couple practical questions just to think through. Uh, hopefully these are helpful to think through how we're doing with this. Um, how do you think about your husband? How do you talk about your husband to others? Uh, the way we talk about other people is very telling. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Um, and then uh, finally, do you pray for your husband? Praying for people is a sign of uh, respect and honor for them. We talked about this last week uh, in the civil sphere, how we are to pray for our civil authorities, and that's a sign of showing honor to them. Um, And the same is true here. Um, I also want to talk about what submission does not mean, because I think people get this wrong as well sometimes. Um, So what is submission not? Um, Well, it is certainly not putting the husband in the place of Christ, right? Our ultimate allegiance is to Christ, uh, first and foremost, right? And we talked about that as well with the civil authorities, right? The civil authorities don't take the place of Christ. Your boss doesn't take the, the place of Christ, and your husband doesn't take the place of Christ, It also doesn't mean giving up independent thought. 
Uh, in 1 Peter 3, the text is addressed to wives directly. Right? There's this assumption that wives themselves are going to be reading the word of God, applying it for themselves. Right? The wife isn't sub- like completely subsumed uh, by the marriage relationship. Um, and it certainly does not mean submitting to sin. Right? So this means uh, not submitting to sinful requests. That's never okay. Um, and it also doesn't mean that wives can never um, point out their husband's sin. Right? Now we are to you know, uh, do this graciously in all of our relationships the way that we point out other people's sin. Uh, but certainly that should be the case in a marriage relationship as well. And obviously, the, the way that we address sin or respond to it is going to vary in some sense depending on the, the severity of the sin, right? So if a wife is experiencing physical abuse, then that's going to require a lot more drastic uh, actions. It also does not mean um, keeping all problems within the marriage. So what I mean by that is that um, if there's a problem in the marriage, uh, submission doesn't mean the wife can never go outside of the marriage to deal with the problem, if that makes sense. Right, so the Matthew 18 principle, think about Matthew 18, it's predicated on the, the assumption that at a certain point, if the other party won't repent, you involve other people. Um, and so that's still true within the marriage as well. Obviously, we start by going to, the, uh, going to the offending party one-on-one, right? And if that is not successful, then you take it to the next step. And then finally, uh, Peter says in verse 6 of chapter 3, uh, he describes not being fearful. And so I wanted to put that in here as well, and we'll talk about that in a little more detail at the end. Uh, but submission is not this. It's not timidity. It's not fearfulness. So wives are to submit in the Lord. This is something that uh, Paul says multiple times in his discussions of submission in Ephesians and Colossians. And I think that gets to this point that uh, submission to husbands flows from submission to Christ. It's, it's the fruit of submission to Christ. Um, and it also, I think, gets at how we approach it or how we exercise it, that it should be cheerful, uh, voluntary, as you would submit cheerfully to Christ. And so the heart attitude with which we do anything matters tremendously. Um, now, wives can kind of miss the mark here on submission uh, by going to the extreme, so to speak. You can kind of fall off the boat in one of two directions, um, either by being overly aggressive, so wives competing for leadership in the family, resenting the husband's authority. Um, that's the result of sin. It brings great destructiveness in the marriage. Um, and that's possibly the more you know, common tendency due to the curse that we see in Genesis 3. Um, and then you can also miss the mark by being overly passive. Right? So a wife who's completely passive, who doesn't contribute anything to the decision-making process, who never offers uh, advice or counsel or respectful correction, um, is also undermining a marriage. Right? So submission is not going along with whatever someone else says. So Peter here gives us, or gives wives, two main reasons to exercise this kind of um, loving and respectful submission. And the first that he gives right at the beginning of the passage is the salvation of unbelieving husbands. So what Peter is saying is that the conduct of a wife can have a very powerful effect in a marriage that God can use in the conversion of an unbelieving husband. A wife's submission can soften a hard-hearted husband. Um, I think that's uh, hopefully a real encouragement for anyone that's in that situation not to despair, right? Even in a situation where the husband might have become hostile, hostile to the gospel, stopped listening to the wife, what Peter is saying, what the word is saying here is that the witness of the wife's life is evident and it's powerful um, even, in those, in, even in those situations. 
So that's one reason to exercise this kind of uh, submission. Um, and the second reason is for the sake of the Lord. And Peter talks about this at some length um, with his uh, text in verses 3 and 4, uh, especially um, on adorning, right? So he has this, this contrast that he lays out. You know, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Um, so he's, he's contrasting the vanities of fashion with the substance of biblical character. And Peter isn't saying here that it's immoral to wear clothing, or, or, or I should say fine clothing, right? Obviously, it's not immoral to wear clothing. Uh, or jewelry, or, or to dress up and make yourself look nice. He's not saying that's a bad thing. Um, what he's saying is that uh, or what he's getting at is the kind of the fragrance of your life, right? What characterizes us? What are we pursuing? What are we seeking after? Um, and so uh, it's interesting to think of this in light of the Roman culture and times. And I think Levi actually probably showed some of these same, same pictures. I found some busts of Roman uh, hairstyles. And it's kind of amazing when you look at these, just the, the amount of uh, attention and energy and detail that would go into creating these kind of curls, right? And uh, there's a couple more here. Um, they're just kind of unbelievable to, to think about creating that kind of hairstyle. And the point is this. So this society, they're obsessed with fashion. They're pouring all of this energy and attention and time into it. Um, and Peter is challenging us and saying, what, are, what characterizes you? What are you about? Um, is it material things or is it godliness and, go- and good works, right? Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so Matthew Henry uh, put this very well, I thought. He said that Christian women should focus on beautifying their souls more so than their bodies, right? So rather than focusing on or finding your identity in this outward display of beauty, um, God is saying here that he prizes gentleness and submission as evidence of true faith. Um, and he, it's, it's precious in his sight, right? This heart that has learned to trust in God's provision and sovereignty, and so he describes it in verse 4 as literally beautiful, this imperishable beauty versus the perishable physical beauty, right? There's all this time spent on this beauty that fades away, that, that perishes forever. Uh, but this quiet and gentle spirit is precious in God's sight. So I think that's helpful for us to remember how God views this in light of our cultural context, which thinks this is crazy. So then Peter wraps up um, his section here by mentioning the example of Sarah, uh, Sarah and Abraham. And this is kind of an interesting example. We think of Sarah, um, you know, when Sarah submitted to Abraham, even in his folly, really, uh, things went well for them. Uh, and when Sarah took the lead in trying to solve the problem of no heir and giving Hagar to Abraham, then Ishmael resulted, right? And so there's a little bit of a contrast there. I think what Peter's doing, though, he's saying, in general, Sarah's attitude was one of submission, This the idea of calling him Lord, and so that is the, the positive example that he's highlighting here for believing wives. And the other positive thing that he highlights is the lack of fear. Um, and you know, he says, do not, when you, uh, you're her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Uh, so faith is demonstrated by not fearing anything that is frightening. Um, and I think submission can be frightening, right? We, we like to have control or to think we're in control. And submission is actively kind of releasing that control. And so it's a quiet confidence in God 
and a, a rest in his sovereignty that it will allow a wife to do that, to submit to a husband's headship without fearing that it's going to be harmful to her ultimate well-being. And I think that's exactly what Peter is getting at here. All right, verse 7. Peter is going to move now to addressing husbands. He says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. All right, so Peter has this word, likewise. He's continuing in the same theme, this vein of submission and humility. Um, And he has this exhortation to husbands with this uh, two-part command and a warning here. And he's saying this word, likewise, means, so just as wives are called to humble themselves in submission to their husbands, husbands are called to humble themselves, likewise, in the same manner with loving service to their wives. So the attitude is the same, and the outworking of that is a little bit different. Um, So, Husbands are called to humble service. Uh, Husbands are to picture Christ in their headship, as we talked about before, this picture of marriage in the church. Um, And it's an insanely daunting task when you think about the fact that, you know, Christ's headship of the church is our salvation, resulted in our salvation, right? And so similarly, a husband's headship, his leadership in the home, should be a source of tremendous blessing to uh, the wife and to children. And Peter says, first of all, that husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way, or according to knowledge, I think is how some translations put it. Um, So husbands, first and foremost, must know their wives before they can fulfill their responsibilities as husbands. Um, And that knowledge is to be used to nurture wives um, and children. Uh, Rick Phillips has been here a couple times uh, doing men's conferences And he's talked about this very passage at at some length, uh, describing that the responsibility, there's a responsibility that comes with leadership, right? And so that responsibility is to foster the well-being of those under your care. Uh, He used a gardening analogy. He said uh, men's fingers should be black with the soil of their wives' hearts. And so this idea is that the the measure of our manhood can be seen in the the spiritual and physical well-being of our wives and children. And so living in an understanding way means knowing your wife to such an extent that you can effectively nurture her and promote her well-being by your own proactive leadership and service. So some practical questions uh, for us as husbands as we think about, are we doing this? That's a little little small, sorry. Um, But do we actually do this? Do we actually spend time getting to know our wives? Do we know our wives' aspirations, uh, fears, burdens, Um, Are we proactively investing time in the marriage relationship? Do we plan date nights or weekends away? Um, And if we have those, are we the one that plans it, or do we just sit back and wait for our wives to do the initiative and do the booking and do all the hard work to set it up? Um, And then do we pray with and for our wives? So all of these things are things that uh, we should be doing in in that effort to, to know our wives so that we can effectively lead them. So we're to live with our wives in an understanding way. And then Peter says, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, uh, describing women as uh, physically weaker and more vulnerable. Um, and so this, the idea of this, uh, this leadership role um, in that context makes me think of Christ's discussion of authority in Matthew 20, uh, 25 to 28. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. 
But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Christ is saying here that the, you know, the, the pagans lord their authority over others, but the Christ-like authority figure is a servant. And so Christian authority is not arbitrary. It should never be abusive or coercive. It should be loving. It's seeking the best for those under its care. It's serving them. And so wives are to submit to their husbands, but the godly husband uh, is to understand his wife, to know the, the vulnerabilities of his wife, and then seeking to protect her from harm. That's part of what Peter is getting at when he describes this uh, living in an understanding way with consideration and with care, not with harshness. Um, and uh, Peter describes this, this word showing honor uh, we think of it as showing respect, uh, not belittling your wife, right? providing for her needs. It literally means um, treating her as precious, viewing her as precious. And so that's the attitude that husbands are to have with their wives, is that they are, they are precious. Um, and, part, and Peter gives us some motivation here or, or reasons for viewing our wives that way. Um, and one, one big motivation here is that he says they're heirs with you of the grace of life. Right, that this is a motivation for exercising this kind of sacrificial uh, service for our wives. Um, how can a godly husband, in other words, how can a godly husband treat his wife poorly uh, knowing that Christ has died for his wife? Right? The great value that God places on each believer is evidence in the cost that he paid to redeem them. And so a Christian husband should be especially gentle and considerate with his wife because she's been bought by Christ and because he has this specific responsibility for her well-being. So husbands, again, can uh, fail in one of two ways, right? The extremes, again. Uh, they can be overly aggressive, right? Acting in selfish or harsh or domineering ways. Uh, this is sinful. It brings great destructiveness to a marriage. Um, and it's completely unacceptable behavior to God. This is part of what Peter gets at uh, at the end of uh, the end of the passage here when he gives this warning um, in, at the end of verse 7. The, the warning at the end of verse 7 that your prayers may be hindered. Uh, God, is, right, God is so concerned with husbands treating their wives uh, with gentleness that he gives this warning right, that, they will, that he will not hear their prayers if they engage in this kind of behavior. Uh, that's terrifying. Right? If that doesn't terrify you, then I don't know what will. Right? Prayers are a connection to God uh, Peter's basically describing being cut off from God's daily grace to us. If that doesn't scare us, then we, maybe we're so proud that we think we don't need God, right? That's kind of the only way you would not be concerned about that. Um, God cares deeply for his people, for his flock, for his sheep. Um, and so as husbands, we are shepherds of our families, and God will not suffer a husband to abuse that role without consequences. Um, he's kind of saying if you are disregarding your wife, then God is going to disregard you. The other way that we uh, miss the mark here is passivity, right? This is less obvious, right? But this is the other uh, tendency that we have. Um, the opposite of this domineering attitude is being entirely passive, failing to take initiative, failing to lead the family. Um, letting your wife make all the decisions and take the initiative is equally destructive. Um, and in my humble opinion, I think passivity is actually the bigger problem um, in our society, uh, bigger problem than, than tyranny in the home, essentially. Um, I think my, men failing to exercise godly leadership is a tremendous problem in our society, in our families, um, and in the church. So 
the reality is that being a considerate husband doesn't mean that you go along with whatever your wife wants to do. You have a responsibility before God to exercise leadership, um, and you're going to be held accountable by God for the well-being of your family. Right? So if a wife is inclined to do something the husband thinks is morally wrong, uh, then he is abdicating his leadership if he participates in it or, in it or goes along with it. Um, and that is exactly what Adam did, right, if you think back to the garden. Uh, pa- this passivity was, was Adam's, the way Adam failed, essentially, in his headship and his leadership. And so we probably have a tendency ever since then to do the same thing. Um, so as husbands, we need to be able to parse what is morally wrong versus what is just uh, different from a, um, uh, from a preference standpoint, different preferences versus what is morally wrong. Um, and then be willing to make decisions that might go against our wives' desires if we think that that is the, the right thing to do before God. So that requires wisdom and leadership. In summary, then, uh, husbands should aim for this loving, this considerate, this sacrificial leadership of their families. Uh, wives should aim for active and joyful submission to their husbands. And then both authority and submission need to exist in this atmosphere of grace and love, not one of coercion. Or manipulation. So verse 8 through 12 now, he's addressing the church. Peter says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and to see good days, Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. All right, so Peter says, all of you, he's now addressing, he's been addressing these individual or these subsets, and now he's addressing the whole church when he says, all of you. Uh, And he's saying the church should be marked by these specific attributes, um, unity of mind, there should be harmony, like-mindedness, this, this shared understanding of the truth that we have as believers. We should be marked by sympathy, uh, rejoicing with those who rejoice, mourning with those who mourn. Uh, we should be marked by brotherly love. Right? We have this new filial relationship with one another because of our union with Christ. We've been adopted into God's family. Uh, a tender heart, we should be marked by compassion, being compassionate and kind-hearted toward others, Um, and then a humble mind, right, humility. We should not be self-centered or easily offended, but oriented towards loving service of others. Um, And this particular list, right, why did Peter choose these? Um, These attitudes are essential for the well-being of the body of Christ and for our relationships in 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 local congregations, saying this is what this humility looks like uh, this is how it plays out in the church, right? We follow the example with, of Christ, and we treat each other in these ways. I think a great parallel passage to this that hits on a lot of these same themes um, is Philippians 2, uh, 1 through 8. Paul says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul here is describing this same mindset of humility. What is the mind of Christ that he's talking about here? It's this mind of humility that Christ humbled himself. Um, And so that is the same attitude that we are to have in the church, uh, to humble ourselves and to exhibit this loving service for one another. All right, so then uh, continuing on to verse 9. Uh, verse 9 it is Peter's kind of summarizing the passage of Psalm 34, 12 to 16, that he quotes here in verses 10 to 12. And what he's saying is that the Lord's blessing comes with pursuing peace and goodness, even in the face of evil and suffering. So we are to resist doing evil ourselves. We're called to do good, even if those around us are doing evil. Uh, and being sinned against is no rationale for us to then go out and sin. Right? God doesn't give sin a pass just because someone else started it, right? Um, So as believers, we're not to retaliate. Uh, This is consistent with Christ's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I put Matthew 5.44 here, uh, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, This is after he says earlier on that, you know, the famous passage about uh, going the extra mile and turning the other cheek, or it's the same idea here. Uh, Paul says in Romans 12, we are to overcome evil with good, or excuse me, repay no one evil for evil, uh, in verse 17, and then 21, do not become, do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, right? So we are to rest and trust in the Lord's justice, uh, Deuteronomy 32, 35, vengeance is mine, right? The Lord is the one who will deal with sin, um, and so we are to not retaliate. And so we know that uh, peace and joy right, are the, inter- the eternal inheritance of the believer, but this has practical benefits even in our days on earth. There's no good that comes from repaying evil for evil, for taking vengeance. Uh, there are even tangible blessings in this life for doing this, for seeking peace and pursuing it, uh, or for living peaceably with all as far as it depends on you. That's one point of this. And then Peter kind of expands on this in verse 13. So verse 13 to 17 Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame." For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So verse 13, now there, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Um, Peter is continuing this idea uh, that there's a practical benefit for doing good, uh, specifically with reference to avoiding earthly suffering and punishment. Or you think of Romans 13, 3 to 4, rulers are not a terror to good behavior, but to bad There's this tangible benefit to staying out of trouble, to keeping your nose clean, to obeying the law, and enjoying the benefits of good behavior, right? So doing good is the best way to prevent suffering from, like, an earthly wisdom standpoint. But that said, the thrust of Peter's argument in in verse 13 is not just that believers have a better-than-average chance of avoiding suffering, right? This is truly a rhetorical question, now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Right? His point is that 
no real harm can actually come to the believer. Right? We read Psalm 34. It says, The face of the Lord is against the wicked, but his ears are open to the prayer of the righteous. He will redeem the life of his servants. So what he's saying is no true harm can come to the child of God because God will preserve his servants. He will vindicate them on the last day. Suffering cannot separate you from the love of Christ. Now, that said, again, we know, uh, and he, he acknowledges in verse 14, right, that the Christian can expect uh, some measure of suffering for righteousness' sake because the world hates God and hates his people. So we're going to experience this suffering. But he, he says that suffering is not the opposite of blessing. There's this blessing that comes with it, which is paradoxical, right? And we see this in Matthew 5, uh, the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, uh, Christ is describing the same reality of blessing uh, despite surf, uh, persecution and suffering. Um, and in chapter 1, we talked about the sanctifying uh, benefits of suffering, uh, things like the strengthening of our faith, right? the, the exposing of the idols of our hearts, mortification of sin, um, how suffering uh, removes a lot of the fears that we wrestle with, um, and how we experience greater uh, joy in the presence of the Lord. Uh, through this experience of suffering. So Peter continues in verse 15 in this vein of uh, how do we think about suffering? And he says, have no fear of them, meaning those who are, who are, ca- who are persecuting you, essentially, who are causing this suffering. Uh, now, that's the normal reaction to pain, right? We don't like pain. We fear the, pa- we fear the pain, and we fear whatever is causing the pain. Uh, and so uh, what Peter is saying here is that we are not to fear it, but we are to fear God alone. And we talked about this a little bit in earlier, uh, uh, earlier sessions as well in chapter 1. Um, Edmund Clowney said that we need to, or Christians need to exchange the fear of men for the fear of God. And we have, this, we have a great example, actually, in the life of Peter himself. Um, Peter, uh, before the, crucifix- uh, before the, um, the crucifixion, Right, he follows Christ, uh, he goes into the courtyard, and then he denies Christ three times. Right? He's, de- he's demonstrating this fear before the servant girl and before those who are in the courtyard. Um, and then after the resurrection, uh, Peter is boldly proclaiming Christ, even in front of the Sanhedrin, the very council that crucified Christ. Right? So we have the same one who's afraid to acknowledge Christ in front of a servant girl, and then boldly proclaims the council and rebukes them for crucifying Christ. So that's a great example of how the fear of the Lord kind of drives out the fear of man. We know, uh, you know, we, we know the end of the story. We know that the battle is won, right? Uh, Psalm 34, again, it talks about this. There's this surety of vindication, right? We know that the Lord uh, will punish the wicked and he will vindicate his servants. Um, and so Matthew Henry, again, on this note, described that fear of God is the best antidote to fear of suffering, which is a great uh, segue to Peter's next clause here when he says, um, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. This is the same theme, right? We are to regard the Lord as holy. We are to fear God alone. We are to recognize Christ's lordship, his deity, and know that nothing can happen to the believer outside of God's sovereign care. And because of the resurrection, right, we don't need to fear death. We don't need to fear anything in this mortal life. And we should have such a regard for the Lord that, uh, as Bill Harrell put it in Let's Study First Peter, we should always fear sinning, but we should never fear suffering. That's the kind of fear of the Lord that we should have.
And so we have this uh, fear of the Lord, and we should always, then in the next clause, be prepared to make a defense. Always be prepared to make a defense for the reason for the hope that is in you. Uh, So make a defense, this means to give an answer, to make an apology. This is where we get the word apologist, actually. Uh, We think of Paul answering answering the charges before Agrippa, or Peter, again, before the Sanhedrin. And the defense that Peter is talking about here is not limited to just courtroom settings, but to anyone who asks. Um, And what are we defending here? Peter says the reason for the hope that is in you, right? Our hope is one of the things that actually differentiates us from the world, and our hope provides the content of our witness. Ultimately, if you reject God, then you have no hope, right? That's the logical conclusion of any worldview that rejects God, which means that the Christian's hope should stand out, right, in a pagan culture. And that hope is especially uh, evident. It stands out even more in suffering. Uh, We think of Paul and Silas in prison, right? They're in prison. They've been beaten. And what do they do in the middle of the night as they're chained to the stocks? They're singing. That's not normal human behavior, right? That is that is this hope that Peter is describing that, that comes out uh, in a glorious way for the believer. So how do we defend this hope that we have? Uh, we do it with uh, gentleness and respect, Peter tells us in verse 15. So we're never to uh, ridicule others. We're always to be courteous um, as we're defending the reason for the hope that is in us. We're to treat others with respect. Um, and then he says, having a good conscience in verse 16 um, this is really critical as well. Right? The Christian's lifestyle has to be a complementary witness that supports his or her profession of faith and is a contrast to the behavior of the world. Right? So the witness of a good conscience is crucial for the witness of the good news, for our verbal profession. Um, a profession of faith with a matching life of integrity is consistent. That stands out. Uh, by contrast, if you know, if we have someone who's making bold claims for the gospel and then living a completely corrupt lifestyle, then it completely undermines their profession of faith. And then Peter, again, uh, mentions this idea of being slandered. We keep coming back to this um, idea. Last week, we talked about this as well, that uh, the gospel needs to be the offense, not our behavior, right? So we're going to experience slandering from the world, but it should not be because of our behavior. It needs to be because of the offense of the gospel, Um, And what Peter is saying again here, as we discussed last week, is that by treating others with respect and with gentleness, these false accusations will be shown to be baseless, right? And he talks about how it puts the accusers to shame. Now, we don't know when that's going to happen, right? So that could happen in this life, or it could not. It might not happen until the day of the Lord, uh, when God's people are fully and finally vindicated. And so this is where we wait on the Lord. We trust his timing for these things. I'm going to move to our last paragraph here, last section. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All right, so looking at verse 18, uh, Peter's describing how how Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And so he's reminding us as we think about our own uh, suffering here for righteousness sake, persecution of the church, uh, we need to remember, again, this example of Christ, right? That Christ also suffered, and not just suffered, but suffered unjustly. And so if we think that God's call of us to uh, do good in the face of suffering is unreasonable, then we need to remember Christ, right? And Christ is really the only one um, who truly suffered unjustly. He was really, he's the only righteous one, right? And so, you know, we might suffer unjustly because we didn't deserve whatever action happened because of what we did, but it's not like we don't deserve any suffering, unlike Christ, right? And so Christ suffered to an extent that we cannot comprehend and that we will never face because of the grace of God. Um, and Christ did not just suffer, but Peter says that he suffered with a purpose. He suffered to bring us to God, And so we have this, he's bringing the the gospel here, right? That our sins have made a separation between us and God, which could not be bridged except through Christ. And I love how Paul puts it in Ephesians 5, 27, right? Christ didn't just bring us to God, but it says that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Christ has suffered to bring us to God, And Peter says also that he suffered once. He suffered one time for sin. He has this one-time sacrifice that atones forever for God's people. Hebrews 10, 10 to 14, uh, describes this contrast between this one-time sacrifice and the Old Testament uh, sacrifices, which foreshadowed it. It says, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for, from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified." Right, so Christ's sacrifice is this true and complete act of atonement for the people of God. So Peter's describing here uh, in 1 Peter 3.18 this great exchange, right, that Christ took our sins and we received his righteousness. This is substitutionary atonement. Um, I was teaching some church history uh, to the high schoolers in the fall, and we were reading some of Luther's original writings and uh, Luther described this, described justification, described this substitutionary atonement um, in terms of marriage. Uh, so he used this marriage analogy, right? The idea that in marriage, property gets combined and shared, right? So when I married Rebecca, my stuff became hers and her stuff became mine. We have this shared property after marriage. Um, so the way Luther described it is that uh, when Christ married the church, right? Christ took tr- the church as his bride. He took on, he took ownership of, he suffered for his people's sins, right? Our sin is what we bring to the marriage. That's what we contributed, right? And so on the, the flip side, Christ brought his righteousness to the marriage, and that's what we lay claim to when we are united to Christ, right? It's now, our, it's now ours. We're accounted righteous uh, because of what Christ has done. 
So that's exactly what Peter is describing here, that Christ's death resulted in our everlasting life. All right. Um, so then we get to this really confusing couple of verses here uh, in, in verses 19 through uh, 21, really. 12, uh, 19 and 20, mostly. And so Peter says, uh, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the captives in prison. And this has led to a whole variety of different interpretations for what does this passage mean? What is Peter talking about here? And Edmund Clowney uh, did a really good job, I thought, of summarizing uh, some of the different views. So we're going to talk about uh, some of the main views of this, uh, or interpretations of what Peter is saying here. Uh, so uh, the, there's three major views we're going to talk through of this proclamation of the spirits in prison. Uh, and so the first view here is that uh, Christ descended into hell, and he preached to the spirits in hell who perished in the flood and offered them a second opportunity of repentance. And there's kind of like a tangential view that also says, well, Christ, uh, yes, Christ has descended into hell, um, but instead of really offering a second chance of repentance, um, he was releasing Old Testament believers who were awaiting his coming. Uh, so in other words, Old Testament believers didn't go immediately to heaven. Um, now, this is problematic for a number of reasons. Um, it conflicts with all other doctrine about hell and judgment that we see in Scripture. Um, we know that Christ was vindicated and raised. His soul went to heaven after death. It did not go to hell. And the souls of all of the righteous do not go to hell. They go to heaven. Um, a great example of this from Scripture is the thief on the cross, Luke twenty-three forty-three, where Christ says, today you will be with me in paradise. Right? Christ did not descend into hell he was vindicated and raised to heaven. Um, and the Bible is also clear that there is not a second chance for repentance after death. Um, that's not the case. Um, we see an example of that, again, from Luke um, 16, 19 to 31, is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, right? And there's this, there's this um, dialogue, right, between the rich man and Abraham uh, as, they're, you know, uh, as, as um, the rich man is suffering in hell. Right? And Abraham says, there's this chasm that's been fixed. Right? No one can cross you know, between it. it. This life is it. Once this life is over, there is no further chance for repentance. Um, so that is uh, an, an, an inaccurate view of this passage. Second interpretation of this is that the spirits in prison actually refer to fallen angels, not to people. In other words, Jesus went and proclaimed his... Uh, his victory uh, to the fallen angels and kind of their final doom because he's accomplished his redemption. Um, and so I think part of this comes from, there's a couple passages in uh, 2 Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6 that describe angels in prison. I think that's where this idea comes from. Um, but this is not satisfactory either. Uh, Peter here is clearly describing um, the days of Noah. We have this close reference to Noah and Noah's ark. Um, and so... Uh, when Peter is saying uh, those who disobeyed in the days of Noah, that's just not true of angels, right? They cannot refer to angels. Um, and we also say, it also says God's patience waited in the text, right? So uh, while the, the idea is while the ark was being built, there was patience, there was this delay of judgment, and that is an opportunity, was an opportunity for that generation to repent, which is also not true of angels. So it cannot refer to angels, um, and then the third view, uh, which I think has been held by uh, Augustine and Matthew Henry, among others, and this is uh, by far of the three the best interpretation, um, is that 
Christ preached the gospel to Noah's generation through Noah. So when he's saying the Spirit of Christ, he's, saying, he's talking about the Holy Spirit basically preaching through Noah, just like the Spirit of Christ preached through all of the Old Testament prophets. Um, and so that's this reference to Noah and to Noah's day. And so the spirits in prison then are those who were people who were alive during Noah's day, but they perished in the flood, and now they are in prison in hell. And so God demonstrated this great patience in giving them time to repent while the ark was being built, but his patience ended, and then they perished and were cast into hell. And so the deliverance of Noah and his family is prefiguring um, the salvation of Christ, which happened through Christ's death being put to f- Put, being put to death in the flesh, and his resurrection, being raised in the spirit. So Noah's ark points to Christ, who is the true ark of safety. And Peter is also then comparing the days of Noah to the last days after Christ, saying that the world now is under sentence of judgment just as it was in the days of Noah. And so believers trust in that same word of Christ that Noah's family embraced as they were saved on the ark through the judgment of the flood. And that same judgment awaits those today who reject Christ as those who perished in the flood. So that is, that is I think, uh, definitely the, the best of the three views in terms of how to understand this passage. Um, and then Peter clearly ties uh, baptism to the flood. Right? The baptism relates to the flood by picturing uh, this idea of passing through the waters of judgment. Um, and he says that it's not a removal of, uh, not a removal of dirt, um, so what he's saying there is the act itself doesn't save you. Right? He's saying the, the act in itself, just by itself, is powerless on its own. Um, but Peter is referring to this new existence we have in Christ because of the resurrection. So he says, but as an appeal to God through the resurrection. Right? So God is the one, it's appeal to God. God is the one who blesses the sign with its attendant reality. And baptism signifies union with Christ in his death and resurrection. And so this reality of union with Christ that is symbolized by baptism, was accomplished by the resurrection. Essentially, what he's saying is the efficacy of baptism is tied to the resurrection of Christ. Since Christ was raised, that's where the, the power of baptism speaks, or comes from, so to speak. All right, and then finally, uh, last verse here, 1 Peter 3.22, uh, describing Christ's ascension and his reign. Right, Christ ascended to heaven, where he continues his mediatorial work in making constant intercession for us, he sent us the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and he, he is preparing a place for us. And he is reigning over all things, right? It says all things uh, are subject to him. Um, he's seated at the right hand of God. His, his work is complete. His authority is assured. And so this is a comfort for the believer, right? Once Christ submitted himself to humiliation and death, but now he is in glory with all things under his feet. And so this is a promise to us as well that we too have this period of suffering on earth, but one day we will be raised to glory with Christ. And so Jesus' ascension and glorification that are described here uh, assure us, it's a promise to us, that we too are more than conquerors, and we too will experience this victory and glory of Christ as well. I think I'm probably out of time. I guess we, we might have time for maybe one question, if, there, if anyone uh, has a question they'd like to ask. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for this text. We thank you for uh, the reality that we just read of the resurrection um, and the tremendous hope and the future that we have, the inheritance that we have uh, in Christ. Uh, we thank you that you've been gracious to us, that you have 
um, uh, you have saved us, you have redeemed us in Christ, Lord, that we have a refuge uh, from the wrath and the judgment that are to come. Um, We pray that you would grow us in gratitude for what you have done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.